Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And Ben, I'm going to save it till later, but we have one amazing Sherlock Tulpa story. Is it beginning to work properly? This is. We'll save it till the end. Okay. But, you know, we kind of, when we started this, we did our little scale, and at the top of the scale was a full apparition of Sherlock. When you hear this story, to me, it's a full apparition of Sherlock. Amazing. Amazing. Based on someone who has been trying to follow our plan of thinking and doing Sherlocky stuff. So we'll come on to it later, so don't go anywhere, because that is... One, it's just amazing. It's an amazing story. So we'll get to it after the episode. The other thing I quickly wanted to mention, and this is probably more a meteor, meet, I can't even say it, a meteorological mystery rather than a paranormal mystery. Oh, yes. I got up in the middle of the night to go and have, you know, a wee, as you do. <laughs> go to the loo, as yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and whenever I do that, I come back and I have a little look out the window, see what's going on, see if the stars are out, see what the weather's doing, see if I can spot a UFO. And uh, I did that, and there was a really not not a not a blanket of snow, but a a dusting of snow, quite a heavy dusting of snow. When I looked out the window, and I thought, really? oh, that's lovely. I thought to myself, oh, it's really cold, so it will still be there in the morning. That'll be great to have a look at. And I woke up and I checked my uh, phone still minus one right so absolutely yeah. yeah it was freezing it's probably around that now no nothing all gone and I'm like how does that happen and you said when you arrived I asked you a question didn't I because you got yes, up to walk yes. your dog or let your dog let out let the puppy out at about four yeah and I was like did you see the snow and you were like well, no what are you talking about so yeah. I don't know what went on there I don't think I imagined it but it was so weird You've got a screen memory by Michael Fish. Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's a screen memory. I'm sure there must be some kind of meteorological uh, explanation. So if anyone out there knows how it can snow and then the temperature remains below freezing and then that snow's gone in the morning, I guess it could have just rained and washed it away. But if you've got an explanation, let me know, because otherwise I'm going, um, did I just imagine the whole thing? Well, next time, check it for hoof prints yeah. after, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after yeah. last year's story. Yeah, definitely. But we're in a snowy place this week. Oh, are we? Good. We are, yeah. We're in Russia, and that's a difficult place to be in at the moment. Yeah. Um, but this story, it sort of needs to be told. But I did, like, this show is devoid of politics, so I know it's awkward. This is by no means a pro-Russian thing, but let's put politics aside and okay, yeah. war crimes aside. Yep. Um, and it all starts with the Tunguska event. Do you know what that is? Is that the is that the meteor that um, is that the one where all the trees got flattened? That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'll, I'll give you the quick um, early nineteen hundreds. Yes, nineteen oh eight. I'll give you the the very quick Wikipedia overview because this is what the, this sets the seed for everything. Cool. Um, it was an approximately 12 megaton explosion, so Hiroshima was 15, right. that occurred near the Podkamania Tunguska River okay. in Yeniski in 
Yenis. Yenis. Yenis Sisk. I think that is. Um, anyway, that part of Russia. They Give were it. never the same after Peter Gabriel left. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on the morning of the 30th of June, 1908, the explosion over the sparsely populated East Siberian taiga, I did look, that I can pronounce, yeah. flattened an estimated 80 million trees over an area of 2,150 square kilometres. That is a fact. That is, yeah. that is what happened. And, and in my recollection of images from it, all the trees were flattened in the same direction, pretty much. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And pretty much all scientists agree that it was a meteorite. Yeah. Uh, some people wanted to suggest that it was a nuclear-powered spacecraft. Right. But um, the, we're not going down those holes because I found a much more brilliant hole to go down. Okay. <laughs> because I was delving around in some old Russian archives. This one is from... 2004 it's by dr valerie liveroff and he works at the national security academy in st petersburg russia i even have his telephone number from the uh, the article i found this in wow. it was very it was deep this was a rabbit hole upon a rabbit hole and you can imagine it caught my eye when i ra- read the headline to his piece evidence and eyewitness testimony suggesting the 1908 Tunguska meteorite was destroyed by intelligently guided plasma terminator spheres, which utilised the technology that could compensate for explosive forces. Wow. And their beginner... That drew you in. That drew me in, but it doesn't stop there. So let me just tell you a bit more about this. Despite me saying last week I wasn't going to do UFOs, I didn't think... You, you will see when you see the second part of the story, I thought I was investigating a different story, right. and then it all came together with this rabbit hole. He says in this piece, Let us return to the 30th of June, 1908, and view all that took place through the eyes of witnesses. The whole observed event developed according to roughly this pattern. Around 7.15am, the meteorite, so he does agree it's a meteorite, right. was moving on a trajectory from southeast to south uh, to northwest. Sorry, A witness saw moving across the sky a belt of smoke with fire flashing from it. It was the meteorite hurtling down to Earth. Okay, so we have got an eyewitness account of the meteorite. Saying, yeah, it was a meteorite, right? People around the crash or the this or the impact vicinity said a fiery pillar appeared in the northwest, about six meters in diameter, in the shape of a spear. So I think it's quite difficult to estimate how big the diameter yeah, was, yeah, but that, that's kind of what they're saying. Yeah. When the pillar disappeared. Five strong, brief bangs were heard, like cannon shots, following quickly and distinctly one after the other. From the uh, Teteria trading post, pillars of fire, he has in inverted commas, were seen in the north. Pillars of fire were also observed in other places that do not lie on a single line. So he's setting up a... Uh, a set of eyewitness accounts right. of these pillars of fire. Now, the reason it's important that it's not a single line is because a meteorite would come down. They don't change direction, of course. They come down right. um, and leave a trail. So it's it's almost like this phenomena, let's call it, these pillars of light, was seen in two separate locations, which wouldn't make sense for a meteor. Yeah, to, to, spare, my, to spare my tongue, he gives six different reference points all throughout that that area right and they're populated points so th- th- you have to understand there is hardly any population in this part of the world yeah yeah he goes on to say immediately after the appearance of the pillars of light 
there appeared in the sky shining and he calls them Terminator Spheres. This is his own terminology, obviously. Good name. That began flying towards the explosion site. Like many thousands of others who questioned it, um, one eyewitness said, at 7.20am, a loud noise was heard. I, I, there's no point in me trying to pronounce that. That turned into peals of thunder. Some of the houses shook from the blows. Many of the inhabitants saw that before the thunder crashed, some fiery body, like a log, hurtled uh, rapidly above the ground from the south and the northwest. Immediately after that, there came a crash, and at the place where the fiery body had vanished, fire appeared, and then smoke. So it's like um, he's describing the closest thing I could think of is like some kind of Patriot missile system. Yes. Uh, well, well I, while I was while you were talking, I was thinking because often when we hear these kind of stories, you go, "Ah, oh, that'll be military aircraft or whatever." But nineteen oh eight, right? Because well, Wright Brothers, nineteen oh three. So yeah, okay, there were there were aircraft, but I mean, not, wow, okay. I'm particularly impressed by the fact that you immediately turned to some notes there and went, right, brothers, 1903. <laughs> How did you know that? I did have a Google while you were talking. Oh, do you? Oh, right, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got some encyclopedic oh, I, I was that, oh, that was genuinely I could have pulled it off, couldn't I? You could. <laughs> well, he then goes on to describe the interception of the meteorite was accomplished by this Terminator striking it from above to reduce its original speed sharply. This released a colossal amount of energy, combined with the energy of the Terminator, literally melted the substance of the meteorite. So he's wow. basically saying it's sort of like, it's an interception device. So, so uh, you may get onto this, but is he saying the purpose of this was to make the meteorite smaller or yeah. knock it off course or a bit of both, maybe? Yeah, to definitely make it smaller. I mean, we can only guess... Uh, the reasoning, but he is basically saying this this thing would have been a lot worse yeah. had it not had this interception. Because on this, I, I mean, I've heard the, the meteorite story of this event. And whenever I, again, through memory, whenever I see a documentary or whatever about it, they always seem to say, oh, my God, if this thing would have been bigger or had hit in a different place, the results yeah. would have been very much different. This is what he is alluding to, yeah. yeah. He also got this really interesting... He's pulled a newspaper report from the 2nd of July, 1908, which is all about the incident. And there's, um, there's a, a reporter there, and he says, On the morning of the 17th of June, the peasants saw to the northwest, quite high above on the horizon, somebody glowing, somebody, not somebody, somebody glowing with bluish-white light of exceptional strength, he says you could not keep your eyes on it. Moving downwards for 10 minutes, having approached the ground, which would be forest area, the glowing body seemed to melt. An immense cloud of black smoke formed in its place and an exceptionally loud noise, not thunder, was, no was heard, as if the sound of falling stones or cannon fire. Yeah. All the buildings shook. At the same time, flame of indeterminate shape began to burst from the cloud. So this, this idea of... Um, Cannon fire comes up a lot. Lots of people describe it as cannon fire, a, right. like a report of cannon fire. And this, that, what you're describing there, just is that after the thing 
the asteroid has crashed before or during what was the time? This is during the the event. During the event, right? So obviously they hear the they see what is presumably the meteorite coming down and it's it's falling 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 and then this is sort of juxtaposed with these, these eyewitness things. reports of these pillars of fire wow okay um he then goes on to quote um another source where it describes the local inhabitants who were questioned by scientists investigating the explosion they asserted that an instant before the terrible flash in places, trees, yurts, and sections of soil from the hills were swept into the air, while in the rivers, the waves ran against the current. These observations are a direct indication that, that what took place was a vacuum implosion, sucking everything towards its centre, while at the same time it had a component operating in the opposite direction, since the trees at the epicentre of the blast all fell outwards from the centre. That's what you were mentioning. Yeah. This difference in directions points to the use of a technology for compensating explosive forces. That's what he's saying. So basically, right. um, it would have been a lot worse had these things not gone onto it. So the airborne explosion is the reason why a lot of people say they sort of go to the nuclear-powered spaceship right. theory because that is how a nuclear bomb works. When it explodes above the air, it sucks it causes a vacuum and sucks all the air into it. And I, I, I'm assuming that's not typical of kind of asteroid or meteorite. No. It crashes. No, no. It wouldn't explode in the air. Well, there are. I read there's a couple of reasons why it could explode in the air. But this meteorite, there is no reason for it to keep falling, 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 falling. It would have exploded higher. In the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he reports on these scientists who were investigating the scenario. He said it wasn't the first time that the researchers had come across the use of technology for compensating explosive forces. The processes and consequences of the Tunguska explosion bear a certain similarity to the explosion that happened on the 12th of April 1991 in Sasevo, some 500 kilometres south of Moscow. Detailed research has shown that in both cases, the main force of the blast wave and the consequences of explosions of tremendous scale and power was shifted into a different space. So this is um, wow. a translation, so it's quite different. It's quite difficult to um, explain what he's saying, but when he says a different space, he means that they're not go the forces aren't all consistent with one single sort, you know, one single ground zero, if you like. Right. And this, this 1991 incident, is that got a connection uh, with an asteroid or a meteor. It's a meteor. It's another one, right? But it has a connection to the Tunguska. Because of the behaviour that it, it, it yeah. exhibited, let's say. And and then from a completely unrelated area, I found out how to bring them both together. That's what, that's the, that's what I'm keeping you hanging on for here. Well, <laughs> it's funny because as you were saying it, I was, you know, because we'd said earlier, it's what saved lots of people was it was in such a remote, area um it seems odd that there would be another one that was like that you know only 500 miles away you know with with within you know what 90 years yeah yeah Eight, with, 80 odd years with similar with similar sightings with characteristics as well yeah he then goes on to postulate that um he talks about the electromagnetic fields that ufos use to distort the structure of space-time now this is something we obviously have heard from Bob Lazar. Three weeks in a row. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he says that's what is used to shift them into different dimensions 
and then various characteristic features of the accounts given by Tunguska witnesses match that sort of thing. So um, some people and animals, he just says, describes that they, they say they were shifted to different places. In other words, they were transferred in space. So there's this secondary right. thing going on where people find themselves in a different place. So they, they're one minute, there's some people walking down by the river, then they hear these noises, and the next minute they're like half a mile away. Wow. Okay. And so are animals, and so are tents. Wow. So he's saying that there's another mysterious force at work the only thing i don't like about that quote is he takes it for granted that we know that that's how ufos work yeah yeah which is which is what i was thinking where you oh yeah well then you know how the the gravity field thing you know (laughs) geez keep up (laughs) i know but the other thing from that that i was thinking is um is he saying that is a byproduct i guess he is he's saying that's the byproduct of some gravitational propulsion system that moves all these people tents and and rabbits um elsewhere or or is he saying that was a deliberate act or maybe he's not making any conclusion he his conclusion is sort of he doesn't make a conclusion but he makes a suggestion and the suggestion is that there is he's alluding to there is some sort of ancient Earth defence system here. Ah, okay. So if you remember in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's something similar to that. If you get too close to a particular planet, mm. it launches missiles at you, yeah. but the planet is dead. This is kind of... And he doesn't, he doesn't make a suggestion that it's alien or whatever, but you will hear from a different angle about where it might have come from. Fascinating. But the, the thing to sort of to bear in mind with this is the sort of the, the final... His sort of final statement in this section is that the fragments are scattered in different directions. So you don't find a single um, piece, you don't find a single crash location. They're spread all over. And this is because there's there's all these little micro epicenters because the parts of the meteorite are being blown up by these spheres. It's, It's a bit like, it's reminding, it's almost the plot of Armageddon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, you got Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, you know, let's blow the thing up and break it into little pieces, you know. That's a similar kind of theory. That's true, that's true. And he then sort of goes into, like, again, if it was a single meteorite, you would have one almighty bang and it would go away. And then this is a really interesting quote which does back up what he's saying. Immediately after, uh, immediately after the terrible bang, accompanied by an earth tremor that caused the buildings to literally shake and give the impression that the building had been delivered a powerful blow, the first blow was followed by a second, equally strong, then a third. In the interval between the first and second, there was an unusual subterranean rumbling, like the sound rails make, might make if ten trains were running on them at once. Then, for five or six minutes, there was something exactly like artillery fire 50 or 60 bangs at short almost identical intervals gradually the last bangs grew weak one and a half two minutes after the end of the continuous firing six more bangs were heard one after another resembling distant cannon shots but distinctly audible and tangible by the shaking of the ground so he has drawn a diagram which shows that there's one two 
three impact centers. So this this third more distant one is him saying this is the Terminator spheres going after another segment of the meteorite that's been broken off by the initial volley of the first two rounds of Terminator spheres. So this, in, in the way this thing he's describing it, you almost have a first wave that breaks it up, in this case, into the th- a few big pieces and then a kind of secondary defence mechanism that goes and then breaks those up even further. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then there seems to be some sort of follow-up to all of this, and he, he speculates that maybe there's a clean-up operation, maybe because there's a fear of um, some sort of contamination coming from outer space, coming arriving on this meteorite. Right. He says that the, the witnesses reported observing Terminators flying above the crash site until the evening of 30th of June. That's a long t- distance. These Terminator spheres, or he calls them secondary s- spheres, have been interpreted by researchers... Um, and were seen by half of all the observers and uh, interpreted by researchers as either UFOs or hallucinations. But he said half of the people have seen it. And so there's something Uh, mechanical flying around. Is there any kind of numbers on how many people that is? Good point, no, not in this article. So it it could be... Half could be one out of two. (laughs) Yes, it could be, it could be, it could be. But I thought that that was really, really interesting. Well, you can see, you know, the narrative building, can't you? Because that makes sense. It's like, like you said, like a clean-up operation or, you know, did we... Yeah, really fascinating. Now, this is important to note. We are now deep in the Valley of Death. That is what it's called in this right. in this area. Okay, I'll get my head in the game. Because the Valley of Death is going to come up in a bit. And he describes then, in a secondary article how numerous soil samples were taken at different distances from the destruction, and each one of them had magnetite sphericals containing up to 10% nickel, and he says that supports the idea that they came from space. Besides magnetite, silicate spheres have been found, and they range in the size of between 4 and 400 microns. The magnetite's particles display a great variety of shapes and different surface characteristics. Besides the predominantly spherical formations, one can also find drop-shaped particles which were produced by the splattering of molten meteorite substance under the influence of the colossal temperature produced by the actions of the terminators. So he is saying that um, you're finding debris of the devices that were used to kill the meteorite. And and I guess he's got some scientific reason for why they wouldn't have come from the meteorite itself. Yes, he says that this is very, very different to the composition of the meteorite. Right, okay. Yeah, and um, he also says, this is quite interesting, some sphericals have a shiny surface, others have a matte, grainy and even finely porous surface, which is down to the meteorite substance vaporising when the matter was viscous. So um, some of these little pieces are coming off the meteorite some of them are coming off the terminator spheres yeah. and so we've got we've got two different sorts of material going on here and we've got all sorts of different microscopic um like s- spheres and droplets which show that one and the other presumably came together and melted each other and came to this sort of uh conclusion where it it, it smashed thousands of little tiny particles all over the ground 
Got you. There's there's another explosion which is kind of similar to this, which is worth pointing out. On the 26th of February 1984, a meteor crossed, uh, crossed the sky of western and eastern Siberia at a height of about 100 kilometres, precisely following the trajectory of the 1908 Tunguska body. At that time, passengers in a bus observed from the elevated section of the Murney Highway far to the north a thin pillar of fire extending from the ground to the sky that began to undergo various geometrical metamorphoses. The sight lasted several minutes and was red in colour. So again, we've got this idea... Mm. Like a missile going up to intercept something. Right. It's a smaller meteorite, but there is something going on because there is something coming up from the ground. And is there a scientific reason why a lot of this occurs in Siberia or Russia? Is it is it something to do with the Earth's magnetic field or... You know, because it, it, that's what's amazing me about like yeah. this is all. Ha- I know Siberia is a huge region. It's all happening there. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, okay. I, I, I loads think... of things going through my mind on that, but I don't know. Is that scientifically? Do meteorites get drawn to kind of more polar regions, or is there something like that? No, I I don't know the answer to that. I think the reason why we're sitting all this time in russia is because this is a russian source yeah so it might be that similar things happen in other parts of the world but we're very specifically this is a study of the ones that are similar to tunguska yeah and and like i said this guy is at the national security academy of russia what he's doing assuming the (laughs) the power sources of ufos but anyway (laughs) um and this was all i should point out that this was all evidence that was presented um, so this is kind of his notes. They were presented at the 2004 Nexus Conference in Amsterdam, um, and where he gave basically a whole talk on his sort of saying, like, this Tunguska incident wasn't natural and providing all the evidence. Are you sure they hadn't been out in Amsterdam, you know, sampling some of the local oh, wares yeah. before they did yes, the conference? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> very good. Uh, no, I mean, this, so he did all of this, all of the study in Russia, then got really excited and went to Amsterdam. It's <laughs> <laughs> just been a big old excuse for him to get a jolly to Amsterdam, isn't it? But the, so it, yeah, Actually, it could have been. I mean, 2004 in Russia is a very different place than yeah. 2004 in Russia now. Yeah. So there was a lot of collaboration between international scientists on this. And I think it was considered something of a fringe theory. But there's a second part of the story that you need to know, okay. which makes it more interesting. All of this episode started with me investigating a family that went missing in the Siberian wilderness before the Second World uh, War. Okay. And the efforts, so nobody knew they were there. And I thought that was an interesting story. And then I found this man's personal account where he goes out, but he's not looking for a family. He's looking for the cauldrons of Death Valley. Right. <laughs> right, so let me tell you, this is a first-hand account. The Cauldrons of Death Valley, that makes no sense to you whatsoever yet. No, sounds it like will a, do. Sounds like a good band, though. <laughs> Murney is a town in the Republic of uh, Saka Yukasia. Yep. See, we've had Murney before, remember, the I bus? Uh, there is, in the basin of the Vilyu River... Russia has its own Death Valley. That's where we've just been. Mm -hmm. In the late 19th century, Russian explorer Richard Mack 
recorded strange tales by locals about paranormal activity in this place. One of the local rivers, uh, which is called Olgudak, which means a place with cauldrons. Another stream is called Algi Timorint, a big cauldron sink. Locals told Mac that giant pots are buried deep in the earth with edges as sharp as razors and made of red metal. Some partly stuck out of the ground and those who spent a night under them woke up feeling ill, weak and with an aching head. In the 19th century, locals even said that they encountered giant people who were one-eyed and clad in metal sleeping underneath the cauldrons. Wow. So I think, oh, oh okay, <laughs> this okay, is the story I, I, I'm going after. I'm not surprised you got drawn into that rabbit hole. <laughs> Modern answers to the mystery revolve around the volcanic activity pushing up gases from the ground, which caused the local nausea, paranoia and hallucinations. And so, yeah, that's fine. The author also points out that there's more than 100,000 square kilometres of this particular region, and most are completely uninhabited. It's a thick forest, uh, it's got uprooted trees, sprawling swamps, and swarms of mosquitoes. Many who happen to wander into these territories have long discovered odd houses shaped like hemispheres protruding from perpetually frozen ground. The formations were smooth, opening the top, widening stairwell leading to a circular gallery with numerous metal rooms. Despite outdoor temperatures of 40 to below, it was pleasantly warm inside. So these aren't just cauldrons. These yeah, are yeah. houses, basically. Yeah, like habitats, yeah. Although the brochure description wouldn't make me want a book. <laughs> no, 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 exactly, no. So so this... this I've, 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 the mosquitoes are sticking in my head. Is that... Are they kind of suggesting that because of these cauldrons or whatever they are, it creates an environment that is, uh, what's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that would create mosquitoes or is a good place for mosquitoes to live or would they just be there anyway? They're there anyway, yeah, yeah, because right. there's okay. so... Oh, oh, took me ages to get to a point <laughs> that was completely useless. No, no, there's sta- it's loads of standing water. Fine, and, okay. Um, you, although it's cold, it also gets warm, you know. So, so the the actual physical uh, environment hasn't been influenced by these things, but there are these things that, if you kind of sleep on them or in them or by them, it can make you ill. They are create a kind of warm temperature, and you know, I guess your description of the cyclops huge people could be uh, seen as a, a an extraterrestrial in a spacesuit. Well, yeah, and that comes... Well, people don't actually go down the extraterrestrial route, but it, it does sound very much like it. Yeah. And and you're, you're right. These these cauldrons, they they become known as... That, that's why everything around there is named cauldron this, cauldron that, yeah, because yeah. it says the elders basically said that this is dangerous region and cursed... And they named it in their local language, the Valley of Death. That's where it comes from. Right. He's suggesting the Valley of Death comes from the fact that these cauldrons are there and hurting people. Yeah, and in the late nineteenth century, you wouldn't, you, you don't, we didn't. They didn't have that association with extraterrestrials and UFOs, right? Yeah, that's right. You didn't right. have that context, did you? No, no, no. So th- he's got loads of tantalising evidence that this might be true. In 1936, there's a geologist who finds a cauldron that wasn't completely submerged in the ground. Um, in, and it's basically near the river, which is the place with the Cauldron River. 
A smooth metal hemisphere with razor-sharp edges and reddish in colour protruded from the ground. Mm-hmm. Its walls were about two centimetres thick. Barely a fifth of it was above the ground, but the opening in the dome vault was accessible by a person sitting on a reindeer. That's so... I love throwing that. <laughs> if brilliant. you're sitting on a reindeer. Yeah. Can you reach the shelf for me? Yeah, it's probably a reindeer high. <laughs> yeah. That is... That's beautiful, isn't it? It is, yeah. I couldn't do it on an elk. The, the geologist sent his description to the capital city, but no one paid it any attention, which is so disappointing. Incre- the way you describe it, though, it's an incredible thing to see. I'm, I'm almost picturing it of, of like a, a shattered egg. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But a, yeah, yeah, a kind yeah. of red, rusty, shattered egg. That is that how people are describing in. it. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Wow. Mikhail Koretsky from Vladivostok wrote to the newspaper Trude that he'd been to the Valley of Death three times. The first time was in 1993, when he was 10 years old, the second in 37, and finally in 47 with his friends. He saw a total of seven cauldrons, all looked mysterious and measured six to nine metres in diameter. Right. The vegetation around them seems oddly unnatural, more lush than the surrounding plants. They spent the night in one cauldron and nothing major happened to anybody, but one member lost all of his hair after about a month and two small pustules that never healed appealed on, appeared on his cheek. It sounds radiation. That's what, yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? The discovery of one old Ivini hunter met with similar disinterest. In 1871, he found in the ground an iron burrow in which there lay skinny, black, one-eyed beings in iron costumes. No one believed him, despite his willingness to show them to anybody. In the meantime, he unfortunately died. Only in 1979 did an archaeological expedition set out from the capital city, and despite the fact that it had a guide, an old settler who saw the cauldrons in his youth, the expedition was unsuccessful. Oh. Didn't look at any cauldrons. The area where they were found had changed dramatically, and the vegetation was so thick they couldn't get close to it. So, he then points out no eyewitnesses currently survive. So he decides he's going to go out. Not even a one-eyed witness. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, So this is where he sort of starts pulling together the argumentation for him to go on a trip. Uh, He says that Russian ufologists rushed to present the theory that the cauldrons were the remains of flying saucers wrecked in a mass accident or battle. There's a Russian researcher, Dr. Liverov, even alleges that they had technical installations and generated by a power plant deep inside the Earth and fiery plasma spheres made to protect our planet from danger in outer space were stationed there. Extraterrestrials built them in ancient times and now they operate automatically. They shot down a Tungus meteorite in 1908, another meteorite in 1984 and most recently the Vitim meteorite in 2002. Today, the radiation levels there are allegedly on the rise again, and this indicates that it is preparing for another attack on a, or, or basically on a meteorite. So this this connection to that earlier work, they com- different sources, completely different thought right, processes. Right, right. I was going to say that, that is there any connection between them? But no, no, right. no, no, no. This is so that's where I went in my journey. Right. What is this about? And that's when I found those first two papers detailing wow. these Terminator spheres. And the, the the second one that we're talking about, so if you go with the flow, they're saying 
many, many hundreds of years ago, maybe even more, alien aliens came to Earth, set up almost kind of bases uh, and a defence system. Yes, and uh, the bit uh, and. That defence system protects us when you know there's a meteor strike or something that might be damaging to us. We and again, you can fit in a narrative after the kind of uh, you could put in a narrative there after the extinction event that destroyed the dinosaurs, couldn't you? It's like right, we need to protect them. Do you know what I mean? You could almost see was that the trigger for them to come and try and help? <laughs> you know, there was an event that kind of wiped out pretty much most of the planet. Yeah, agreed. And but why would you only put them in this region? It goes back to your earlier point. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I was going to ask is is the implication of the way it's written that they came, they set this thing up and then they went or are they saying that the aliens are still here? Well, well, this guy in the 70s said they're still there. You could see them. Right. But nobody believed him. Yeah, yeah. So you want to find out whether this guy found anything, don't you? I do, yeah. So he points out, I won't. He then goes into a very um, Bill Bryson y first hand account. Right. But the basics of it are that um, the only way of looking at this place is from the air because the ground is so difficult to transverse. He wants to hire a helicopter, but one hour is $1,500. And it will take hours and hours, so they can't afford right. that. They don't have yeah. any Budget. um, sponsorship. Budgetary issues. I love the fact that he points out that they um, their pilot had a hang glider <laughs> <laughs> and they thought they would might hang glide over the forest, but as he points out, that felt pretty dangerous. So what they do is they drive <laughs> yeah. into the forest and take powered parachutes because you can go up and down quite easily in a powered parachute, apparently. Right. Okay. I don't really like the sound of that myself, but that's what they do, powered right. parachutes. Um, so basically they drive in, they get into the area of Death Valley where they believe that, um, these spheres might be. They choose the delta of one of these rivers, which is the Cauldron River. And, um, they describe going up, they've got 30 kilograms on their back beyond just the engine and the motor. They've got research equipment up there. And just within seconds of getting up in the air, one of them says he's found something. It's a strange circle. And they map it to um, the coordinates on Google Earth. And fair enough, they know where they are and they can get to this place. Okay. So um, they, they head over here and basically before they go, it's, it becomes really snowy. And they decide that they will wait for the snow to clear, but it doesn't clear. So in the end, they just climb up to this hill where they see it and scrape through the snow. And they find this mysterious clearing, which it's got a thicket growing on it. And they said they'd never seen anything like it before. This idea of this mysterious growth matches the earlier reports of the strange growth of plants around the, around the um, cauldrons. Yeah. But he said it wasn't the long-sought, smooth, protruding hemisphere, but a circular pond about 50 metres in diameter. In its centre, a circular patch of land approximately 30 metres in diameter and a flooded opening in the middle protruding from the water. This didn't look like a natural formation. So, because they don't really have much by the way of 
exploring gear, the pilot breaks off two dry bare branches and using them as poles, heads out onto the snowy island, wading in fishermen's boots through the water. He climbs onto the snow and uses the pole to test the earth below. And beneath the snow is the pole hits something solid. They go round. Sure enough, it's circular, appears to be expanding. It could be a giant cauldron. Okay. It could be. When would you say it appears to be expanding, like moving? No, no, as in it, it go, it's, it's, um, as he pokes, I get it you. seems to go out. Uh, and if, but a few kilometres downriver, they find a similar spot, perfectly circular pond. This time it's 10 metres in diameter, a smooth, solid, gigantically curved dome covered in a layer of mud. With the help of a pole, again, groped its shape, but lacked the equipment to expose it. So they find two solid domes out in this space. Uh, did they take any photos of any of all this? Yeah, there there are photos. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and drawings. Right. But here's here's so they are getting very excited now. Our investigation, however, was impeded by health problems. On the following day, I was suddenly overcome by dizziness, leading to fainting, a complete lack of balance, choking and chills, completely without cause, just like the old legends and warnings about the Valley of Death. We didn't have a doctor with us. And when my condition did not improve the following day, we boarded the raft and spent all night the next day drifting down the river, fleeing the valley of death. They don't, in the end, prove what they found is what they thought they had found. What they do find, however, is a seam of precious metal and they're able to sell the coordinates to a mining operation. <laughs> right, OK. Which I think is, <laughs> it shows a level of ingenuity. Yeah, yeah. But he wants to use that money to, kind of to come back and come back and find the cauldron. Right. So this is quite recent and he says he's going to go again. Wow. But there is, there is inconclusive but compelling evidence that they sat or stood on two of these domes which had been described in the 70s is sinking into the ground. Wow. So this would make some sense. Yeah, that would make sense. And, uh, and I was thinking, actually, while this was running, you know, we said when you just kick this bit off, you know, why Siberia? Why why this area? But, you know, maybe, maybe we answered our question quite early on because that was the amazing thing of the meteor strike, wasn't it? Because it's so vast and unpopulated that... Um, you know, I don't know how many people were killed in the 1908 incident, maybe none. But, you know, it it could have been a complete disaster. Actually, if you go with the story, uh, it would be a good place to set up if you were the aliens because you wouldn't get discovered so easily and it's a vast area for somebody to cover and find you. Absolutely, absolutely. Who were they and what did they want? Yeah. And... You know, is there is this just an old legend? Well, just before we go anywhere else with it, I wanted to say I found another contemporary report uh, from 1936, so contemporary to 1936. There's a merchant um, who is trading the route. So Death Valley used to be part of a nomadic route which was used for trading between two remote areas. And um, when the merchant and his granddaughter decided to move to the area. The old man was told about this legend, so the place that he's, he decides he wants to set up home, the locals tell him it's called Iron House, and one of the locals take him to 
a small, slightly flattened reddish arch beyond a spiral passageway, and it turns into a number of uh, metal chambers in which they spent most of the night. Zena's grandfather says that even in the harshest frost, it was warm as summer. So this is a wow. contemporary 1936 account okay. from a tradesman. Wow. Wow. I like that. Yeah, that's amazing. I, 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 is this the place that's about 500 miles away from the 1908 incident? Is that? It, it, I'm just trying to get in geography. It terms. is. It is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, that, and in relative terms, that's quite close, isn't it? It's very close. Oh yes, yes, it's very close. Wow. Now, I just sort of I started looking around to see if. Um, like what I could do to back up this, because you know we like to have a scientific sort of yeah. um, thing. The first thing I did was I wonder how old sort of um, not British cauldrons, how old uh, cauldrons like normal cooking pots right. could be. Yeah, and I found a, um, a a scientific paper describing some of the early large cooking pots. Because there's no point having small ones. Large ones dating back 3,700 BCE in this part of the world. Okay. So people in that time were making large ones. Not big enough to live in, but right. they're making them. They're making them. And then um, whilst I was researching that, I found from a news source very, very recently, a Russian TV crew flying over the Siberian tundra this summer. So that is not this summer, I think it's two summers ago spotted a massive crater 100 feet deep, 20 metres wide, striking in its size, symmetry uh, and scale. Scientists are not sure how the huge hole, which is at least the ninth spotted in the region since 2013, formed. Initial theories floated that the first crater was discovered near an oil and gas field and it was related to, um, uh, like, methane gas... Well, like but, a natural explosion or something. Yes, yeah. but locals say it is related to UFO landings and the collapse of a secret underground military facility that they say is ancient. Now, this is wow. again a modern thing, but this is a, this is from a local eyewitness talking to a modern news crew. So it's still coming up, and like there's just to show, you, there's a picture of the of the. Um, what they're looking at right okay yeah isn't that weird yeah that solid weird. lines like it's been deliberately blown out it's a bit like um like a, a limpet shell with the kind of hole and what but it, it's quite it's it looks perfectly round doesn't it it's well. perfectly round and it's got and lifting up and lifting up going yes, down. yes 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 as if as if it's come from up. below yes yeah, yeah, yes yeah. absolutely yeah so obviously you start thinking well is that the launch site of some kind right. of ancient protection system. Yeah, yeah, that's where the orbs come out, whatever they were called. The Terminator spheres. Terminator spheres. How did I get that wrong? It's such a good name. The orbs. <laughs> the Terminator spheres, of course. The Terminator spheres are very good. So, um, basically, the Tunguska, I'd never heard it sort of talked about in this way. No. It could neither. have been defended by ancient beings who built a defence system... The legend being that um, they built all these houses to live in. Some of them were still asleep. Yeah. And where the spheres come from, we don't know. Because, you know, again, you could go with that narrative a bit more. 
I'm like liking the bit I threw in that after the extinction event that destroyed the dinosaurs, they thought we're going to have to do something here because life's not going to take off on this planet. <laughs> um, yes. Right? So they come. I, I, I like the idea of rather than that they're still there, that maybe they came to set up this system um, and, like you said, built this base or these houses or whatever you want to call them, these cauldrons, to live in while they constructed the whole thing. They construct it all and go, right, that's the defence mechanism set up. We can go off now. Could explain UFO sightings that every now and again they come back to do a bit of service work. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that does make a really good... Um, it's a good narrative. It's a good narrative. The other, the other one is the zoo hypothesis, where we are being observed by, right. you know, somebody who is either made us or wants to keep us safe, right? And they've equipped Earth with these peculiar systems, and perhaps those beings with one eye were not beings; they were AI sort Ooh. of drones. It, it's basically Earth is a massive safari park. Oh yeah. Like Jurassic Park, Like yeah. Jurassic Park. And actually, the defence system is nothing to do with, you know, some altruistic thing of saving the human race or, or Earth. It's about protecting their investment. So all those UFOs we're seeing are basically safari range rovers. Yeah, they're tourists. And it's like, I always think this with, you know, documentary filmmakers, like when you, wildlife filmmakers, when they create those, like, fake penguins or whatever to go and kind of sit you know what i mean they don't you yeah, don't yeah, yeah. want to be seen because you don't want to change the behavior of the animal that you're trying to observe you could carry that through to earth as a a big zoo or safari park and uh you know alien visitation are just visitors they try and keep out of the way try and not be seen but sometimes you know you get a kind of you know stroppy teenager who jumps the fence yeah yeah totally yeah that is that's a good point. I wonder. Oh, I wonder who invested in that. Yeah, Elon Musk probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, wow, I didn't. I I don't think I will. Um, because it went to much more interesting places. All you need to know about the family that went missing for forty years is that they were worried about religious persecution. Yeah, took themselves out into the woods, cut themselves off. When they were rediscovered, they. Hadn't, they didn't know World War Two had happened. Wow. And um, the only entertainment they had was telling each other what they dreamt the night before. <laughs> and they, they, I know. <laughs> um, it's a very weird story. Yeah, it's um, a weird story. Interesting, though. It's amazing. I always find this where you, you start off with a theme to research for the podcast and you do just go off in all kinds of tangential directions and... You know, you've just basically found a massive conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and 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 a conspiracy with um, with sort of a lot of evidence that is again really tempting to say is sort of I don't know. I was going to say not true, but can be backed up by um, eyewitnesses, but we can't because they're all dead. Right. I, I'm, the other thing I'm thinking. If you go with it that these, you know, this defence mechanism exists, you do come back to that question of, you know, why Siberia, why that part of the world? But 
again, maybe there are um, systems in other parts of the world. We just haven't had to use them as much in those areas. Well, yeah, or they just haven't had the same impact mm. as they have here. If that happened in America, you could bet your trousers that that would be covered up. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it would be again in America, It's just in, in Russia. It's just that um, Russia isn't really just Russia. It's full of tribes yeah. who have their own legends and knowledge and they won't conform to what the government wants them to do. Yeah, yeah. They'll tell you what they know. But what I think is interesting is there seems to be a lot of detail... If you think about it, if you go with the theory, we've got some description of what the alien creatures or robots or drones look like. You've got a a description of possibly what a base or living conditions would look like, at least in terms of style, your cauldrons. You've got descriptions of, you know, let's say they're the... um, the, the weapons that help break up a meteor uh, crashing. You know what they look like. You know what effect they have. There's this kind of displacement of people and objects. It would be really interesting to look at other UFO incidents that are connected with some kind of asteroid or meteor strike that may have some or all of those elements to them that's true that is true yes yes okay i'll do a follow-up i'll do a follow-up yeah i don't know how if you there do is anything that. yeah it'll be interesting to know because that's what fascinates me and it fascinates me when we talk about a lot of these subjects because it's easy to go skeptical and go yeah it's just you know somebody putting two and two together and getting 15 um but We've covered stories and again and again the same things come up, the same smells, the same visual effects, the same colours, the same shapes. And you go, and that's the stuff that makes you go, I get that somebody might create a fantasy or misinterpret something. And usually the out for that is, well, it's probably secret military technology. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in 1908, I don't think it's secret military technology. No, so, it's not. Yeah, so there's something there. I mean, it could be a breakaway civilization. Yeah, yeah. It could be. But um, it's so compelling that this that these cauldrons could be there and we could go in them. I mean, you bet your bottom dollar if you found them, you'd Airbnb them, wouldn't you? Someone would Airbnb them. Yeah, although not if they're radioactive. <laughs> I don't know. I've stayed in some pretty chunky Airbnbs. <laughs> yeah, one star, I, my hair fell out. That's fascinating, though. And it seems, I think you've hit upon a thread that I've not heard before. And it's interesting that that's come together from different sources. That was what that makes to it me. work, yeah, right? Yeah. Fascinating. I think more to be done on that. I think keep digging. I will keep, keep digging. Keep digging down your, your um, Arctic rabbit hole. Oh, I love Arctic rabbits, don't Yeah, you? they're quite cute. Arctic hares, isn't it? Yeah. Did you know that ermine is the winter coat of the weasel? Oh. I know. I found that out the other day. I always wondered what an ermine was. That's what it is. You know, they use fake ones now in the House of Lords. Yes, they, they do. Yes, yes, yes. Thank yes. God for that. There are still oh. some real weasels in the Coens, though. <laughs> Um, so we've been quite chilly the last couple of weeks, haven't we, on the pod? We've done Antarctica and now we've done Siberia. It's, yeah, it's, and very UFO-y too. Yeah, maybe that's where my um, 
my my hallucination of a snow-covered ground came this morning. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I watch out for being taken is all I'm saying. Yeah, no, definitely. Or maybe what I saw this morning was a tulpa. Mm. Ah. Are you ready a for a bit? Yeah. Well, get the violin out. Hold on. Well, I think you're going to have to play today. Hold on, let me just hand okay. it over to you. Hang on then. Have you been practising more? Um, I've certainly been, like, not this, but um, a way in a manger I can do. Yeah, well, let's not do that. Okay. Uh, let's do this one then. All right, give us, a f- give us a few bars to get us going. So, Ben, I teased it earlier. I think you've had a quick read through this as well. This is absolutely amazing. For people who have not heard the podcast before, we launched the TQM Tulpa Project, our mission to try and create the fictional character of Sherlock Holmes, see if we could turn him into a real person or a real apparition. Yeah. Um, So originally we asked people to just think about Sherlock for a few minutes a day and then see if stuff came up. And we created a whole scale. I think there's four things on the scale, but I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. But at the lowest end of the scale, there were just little coincidences. And we've had a lot of those with people doing the Tulpa Project and say, oh, I was listening to your podcast. And then the, the next thing I turn on the telly and there's Sherlock Holmes. At the high end of the scale, we were like, could we have create a real Tulpa, a real life visual sighting physical sighting of sherlock holmes yes that's we, the dream and we've had we've had a kind of ghostly one um which felt a bit dreamlike rather than what i would say solidly in the uh, first bit of the tulpa scale but i think we've got a gray day tulpa sighting of sherlock oh tell us all tell us all so we received a message uh, from Faye. Uh, I'll read it. To, I'll just read it to you because it's amazing. She said, "Hi, I have some Sherlock news. To be honest, I'm a little shaken up by this this incident. I've been listening to Sherlock-related podcasts while I'm at work, so minimal attention paid to the podcast. Basically, she's been doing what we've been asked: do some Sherlocky type stuff. So she's been listening to Sherlock yeah, yeah, podcasts." Yeah said, watch one episode of a retro TV series uh, and I turned the TV one e- on one evening and an episode just happened to be on. So then she started... Ha- so that looks like kind of early activity. She's been doing a bit of work, flipped the TV on and there's Sherlock. She says, anyway, myself and my husband and I were on our way to the theatre last week and across the road from us, waiting to cross from the opposite side of the road was a man in a deerstalker hat. Oh. And all the same clothes that Sherlock would wear. Oh, my God. So a proper looking like Sherlock. Right. She said there was something off about him, too thin and scruffy looking. Long, greasy hair poked out from underneath the deerstalker hat. I said to my husband that the guy opposite us must be going to a fancy dress party. The look was that good. But my husband couldn't see him. No. No, that's what... Oh, my God. When the lights went green, both sides started to cross the road, and so did Sherlock, until he didn't. I broke my look away for a split second, 
and he was no longer on the crossing coming oh, towards no me. Oh, no way. Wow. I looked behind me, nothing. I mentioned it to my husband again, who simply shrugged it off as inconsequential. Wow. She said, when I got home, I started to research the Buddhist understanding of tulpas, and it really shook me up, as apparently thought forms can look a bit dishevelled and wasted from their ideal imagined version. I've heard this. She said, I know this sounds crazy... I don't know what to say. It doesn't sound crazy. No. It sounds brilliant. She said, hope you're both well and life is treating you well. That is a proper Wow, I definitely have got shivers down my spine now. That's incredible. That is incredible, isn't it? That's what I was hoping for, but never imagined we would get it so, not so quickly, but in such a well sort of observed moment, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so not just a deer stalker, full-on Sherlock outfit. And like she said, you could kind of go fancy dress, but her husband couldn't see him and then crosses the road and just disappears, basically. She, she looks away for a second, gone. Extraordinary. That Absolutely definition extraordinary. of a tulpa, right? Absolute definition of a tulpa. And I'm really glad, because I think we said this when we first started it, we picked Sherlock because there's nothing menacing or evil about him. So, you no. know... Nothing to fear in that sense. So that is an amazing sighting. I, I feel like it's the pinnacle of our Tulpa project so far. It really is. I mean, I wonder if he'll come back to her again because that is also a, a sort of a sign of Tulpas. They do yeah. they do revisit. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Well, I think it's down to um, down to her of how she feels about it. If she's feeling a bit freaked out, probably best not to continue doing the Sherlocky stuff. So, you know, she might want to quit there and say, I've done my bit for the Tulpa project, I'm bowing out. But if she wants to kind of experience more, maybe. Or maybe do what we've been suggesting, try and uh, engage Sherlock in solving a mystery for you or yeah. finding a lost item yeah, yeah, or something yeah, totally, like that. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if... Yes, because the Tulpas do come with characteristics like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe um, maybe leave a note out for him. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Faye, for sharing thank that. Thank you so that, much. That's, that's incredible. absolutely amazing, and we really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about it, and uh, hopefully you're not feeling shaken or weird about it, but, um, yeah, well done. <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, a round of applause from me. And both of us. Right, put that five violin away Sherlock for a Sherlock Tulpas out of five. It, what's weird about it is the last couple of weeks it's been a bit quiet on the Sherlock front. Well, yeah. Me and you had a conversation of, oh, maybe it's died a death now and it's not working anymore. It's back with a vengeance, Back with a vengeance, yeah. We'll keep them coming if you do have them. We, I mean, we still want to hear the other stuff, the weird coincidences, but, yeah. you know, full apparition, I would say. Full apparition is... Um, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine it couldn't get any better before Christmas. Yeah, definitely. Um, brilliant. Well, that, that was really intriguing, Ben. I think you've started us a, a journey here of this idea of a defence system for the Earth that's been created either by an ancient civilization or UFOs. Never heard anything like it. So, yeah, good stuff. Good research. Thank you very much. I will. Um, I will follow the leads I got and see. Um, see if I can find out anything more that is related to other parts of the world, perhaps, and other incidents. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, if you um, if you like what we do, if you go uh, subscribe, uh, like, 
or leave a review especially that's really really good if you can leave us a review if you really like what we do if you want to support us at patreon so that's patreon.com forward slash tqm pod get early access to podcasts ad free and we do some other stuff and bits and pieces on there and obviously it helps us uh fund our research and bits and pieces on the podcast so uh, all the patrons out there, thank you very much. And if you're thinking about doing it, do it. <laughs> Absolutely, please do it, yes. Cool. All right, well, we'll see you next week on The Quantum Mechanic. Thank you. See you then. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.